Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin, the podcast is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Head over to osirispod.com. Check out the bevy of podcast offerings they have, all their live events. That is all at osirispod.com. I am thrilled to share with you an interview here with Joanna Schwartz, a professor of law at UCLA, where she teaches civil procedure and courses on police accountability and public interest lawyering. Her writing, commentary, and research about police misconduct, qualified immunity, indemnification, and local government budgeting have been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Christian Science Monitoring, ABC News, NBC News, CBS News, CNN, NPR, and elsewhere. Her latest book is entitled Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. It's excellent and the focus of this episode. In recent years, the high-profile murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others have brought much-needed attention to the pervasiveness of police misconduct. Yet, it remains nearly impossible to hold police accountable for abuses of power. The decisions of the Supreme Court, state and local governments, and policymakers have over decades made the police all but untouchable. In Shielded, Joanna Schwartz exposes the myriad ways in which our legal system protects police at all costs, with insightful analysis about subjects ranging from qualified immunity to no-knock warrants. The product of more than two decades of advocacy and research, Shielded is a timely and necessary investigation into why civil rights litigation so rarely leads to justice or prevents future police misconduct. Weaving powerful true stories of people seeking restitution for violated rights, cutting across race, gender, criminal history, tax bracket, and zip code, Joanna paints a compelling picture of the human cost of our failing criminal justice system, bringing clarity to a problem that is widely known but little understood. Shielded is a masterful work of immediate and enduring consequence revealing what tragically familiar calls for justice truly entail. In this episode, Joanna and I examine the legal principle of qualified immunity as well as Section 1983 of the Civil Rights Act, which has been methodically made less powerful by the Supreme Court over the last five decades. We discuss the varying barriers to accountability that exist within the legal system and the myths that persist that act as a backbone of justifying the protection of police misconduct. We explore changes that are occurring that might hint at days ahead with more robust civil rights enforcement and so much more. It was an honor to talk with Joanna, truly one of the leading scholars in the country on policing. I learned so much from her book. I could not recommend it more. There's a link for a copy of it in the show notes. And I learned a great deal, too, in our conversation. So I have no doubt you'll enjoy this interview with Joanna Schwartz. So thank you again, uh, Joanne. I really appreciated the book. It was fantastic. Uh, learned so much. It's kind of important to keep this conversation going. So that really helps. So thank you for being on the program. 
Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, so there's these stories, and I love kind of how the book is pieced together. Uh, incredible stories. Uh, these stories kind of bookend um, and uh, each chapter and kind of aid in explaining these crucial concepts throughout. And, you know, stories of Alonzo Grant, Rob Lees, uh, the Mario uh, Romero, that Vallejo and uh, uh, Fatal 14 thing was crazy to me. But I was kind of curious because it seems like they were kind of purposeful, I'm guessing, uh, choices into, you know, why you told certain stories. And maybe the goal was to kind of, you know, uh, that these civil rights injustices can happen to all of us. So I'm kind of just curious how how you went about choosing these stories um, that you told. Yeah, it's a great question. And and it, it was really important to me to to accomplish a number of things with mm -hmm. the stories that bookend each chapter. Uh, one is obviously the goal of those stories is to illustrate the various barriers to relief that uh, stand in the way of people whose rights have been violated and are seeking justice in the courts. Mm -hmm. So I had actually played with trying to have one case or one story on, on through the whole thing. Out, throughout the book. And then mm -hmm. I realized <laughs> it's hard to, to do that because these barriers cut off cases, you know, at the trying to find a lawyer, trying to plead a complaint. And mm -hmm. so there was not really one story that, that encapsulated yep. all of them. But I so I wanted to find cases that really illustrated these different legal barriers. Um, it was important to me to find cases that people hadn't heard of before, because the cases that receive a lot of public attention don't function in the courts the same way that a that a more typical case does. Mm -hmm. And then, yes, I wanted to find cases uh, where I felt like it put together, they really illustrate the expanse of civil rights violations, the kinds of violations that can occur, and the kinds of people that they can they can occur to. So obviously, or maybe not obviously, but Black people, Indigenous people, Latino people are disproportionately the subjects of police violence. But there's no one, there's no one type of person who is immune from liability or from and from police force and from efforts to to get justice in the court. So there are there are multiple white uh, people in the book who uh, who were abused by police. There's a there's a executive who is making a quarter of a million dollars. There's mm -hmm. also people who are, uh, you know, multiple times within the criminal justice system um, and people who don't have homes, you know, and, and mm -hmm. people across the country geographically. So my goal was yeah. really to try to illustrate that diversity. Absolutely. And it worked. Yeah, you're right. A lot of the stories um, that I read, I actually wasn't even familiar with. And it was kind of great to give voice to, you know, some people who, you know, were voiceless in that instance. Um, two big items we definitely need to kind of define and talk about that that kind of act as the backbone of this thing. And um, one of them kind of always, you know, centers it, the, the conversation about this centers on that's qualified immunity, known as like kind of the best uh, known shield of the police. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about what it is and, um, you know, how it's uh, how it's used um, to protect, um, uh, um, you know, these type of infractions. Qualified immunity is a protection for officers and other government officials who are sued for money damages. Important to note that this is not about criminal cases, criminal prosecutions. It's just this is about the civil system where where people are seeking some sort of 
um, money as the kind of uh, stand-in for for you know justice, sort of you justice know, the best yeah. kind of justice that we can get. And the Supreme Court created qualified immunity in 1967 and called it a good faith defense uh, for people, for officers, if they had violated the Constitution, but but were acting in good faith, thought that they were following the law. But the Supreme Court has repeatedly strengthened qualified immunity over the years. And I talk about the the whole um, metamorphosis of qualified immunity, but uh, to suffice it to say that today, the Supreme Court has instructed lower courts that officers are entitled to qualified immunity, even if they have violated the Constitution, if they have not violated what the Supreme Court calls clearly established law. And that clearly established law, except in extraordinary circumstances, has to be prior court decisions holding unconstitutional, nearly identical facts. And as I describe in the book, <clears throat> there's all sorts of cases um, involving egregious behavior mm -hmm. where officers are shielded from liability simply because they have the good fortune to have violated yeah. people's rights in an unusual way or in a way maybe that's not even unusual, but hasn't precisely hasn't been, been a case exactly that's been before it. But that was on, that was like really frustrating to read that time and time again, that just like just because it didn't line up that whole identical facts thing. It just, that was, that was another thing that was really um, kind of frustrating the same way was this idea that they were using the idea that they might not know the law. The officers might not know the law or even one of my think Harry Connick senior, he was oh. you know, a new Orleans district uh, attorney, but he was absolved of bad behavior because they thought that he might not know the, the law. So not knowing the law can actually aid you know, the, the, the police. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, um, it's a, it's, a, it's, it, it doesn't make any sense, I think. And, and that's, you know, part of the goal of, for me, of writing this book is, um, pulling back the lens for an audience that's not deeply familiar with all of these legal rules and protections and just thinking about it logically for a moment. I mean, to take the qualified immunity point, um, qualified immunity is uh, described as a way of giving officers fair notice that what they've done is wrong. But the way the Supreme Court has created this standard, they're requiring, they're expecting essentially that officers have read every court decision that clearly establishes the law and not only has read them, but remembers them and not only remembers them, but recalls them in the high speed, high um, intensity work that they do and compares and contrasts these cases to what they're facing on the street. It makes no logical sense. No one who, who hears that or understands it actually believes that it's true. Yeah. And yet it is how the court has justified this protection. Yeah. It's truly wild. I, that was, it was, as I said, it was super, super frustrating learning more about that. Section um, 1983 of the Civil Rights Act comes up time and time again, appropriately. Um, and you wrote that lawsuits remain the best available path towards justice. And this section uh, has been used to kind of aid in that way. So 
So kind of what is it and how it's been used over the year? And then we'll get into how it's been made, you know, powerless uh, in certain ways by the Supreme Court. But knowing this is crucial information to knowing Shielded. Absolutely. Uh, when you when you think about suing the police or and when people sue the police, mm. typically what they are doing is bringing a lawsuit in federal court under a statute referred to as Section 1983. Mm -hmm. um, this is a statute that actually was enacted by Congress in 1871, following the Civil War during Reconstruction. And it was intended to provide civil rights protections to uh, Black Americans who were being terrorized and killed by the newly formed Ku Klux Klan. Actually, the act was referred to as the Ku Klux Klan Act. Mm -hmm. And it was to find a, to, to create a remedy in federal court because state courts and state law enforcement weren't doing anything to, you know, to protect and preserve their constitutional rights. So that was the creation of the statute, the creation of the right to sue. Uh, but as I describe in the book, very quickly, the Supreme Court and then Congress essentially took all of the wind out of the sails of the statute, made it um, essentially impossible to bring cases under that uh, statute. Mm -hmm. Fast forward 90 years, uh, in 1961, we're at the, the, the beginning stages of the civil rights movement, and the Supreme Court has, over a series of decisions, come to sort of recognize that racial justice uh, and civil rights are not being protected by the states and that they need to step in. And so it was in a case called Monroe versus Pape, yep. um, decided in 1961, uh, where the Supreme Court first ruled that Section 1983 could be used by uh, people suing law enforcement officers and other government officials for the violation of their constitutional rights. And so that case, Monroe versus Pape, and that statute section, excuse me, section 1983 has come to be the way in which, uh, the primary way in which people can sue the police and other government officials. Um, but, you know, in the same way that um, after sort of the high point of 1871, when the statute was passed, and then it was the power of that statute was cut away, after the high point of 1961, where the Supreme Court ruled in Monroe versus Pape that these cases could be brought, then again, the power of Section 1983, the power to sue government has been cut away by qualified immunity and other kinds of protections. Yeah. So, I mean, you kind of I mean, the book really and methodically lays out um, a five decade kind of uh, procedurally through all the cases in the Supreme Court, how it's eroded and, and giving more power to qualified immunity. But there are other cases of how it was, um, you know, made less powerful. And can you speak on that somehow as time went by from that moment, that court case in 61 till now, how it's been made less powerful? Yeah. Yeah. And I talk about, you know, in each of the chapters, I talk about uh, various different um barriers to relief in these cases. <clears throat> the first one is, is simply finding a lawyer. 
Um, And you you would be surprised to think that it was hard to get a lawyer. Um, You know, the popular commentary suggests there's no end of lawyers and there may be too many lawyers in the country, but there's not enough lawyers practicing civil Mm -hmm. rights law. And as I described, part of that has to do with the way in which the Supreme Court has interpreted lawyers' entitlement to be paid. Mm -hmm. Um, Congress enacted a, a, a statute in 1976 that allowed prevailing attorneys or prevailing plaintiffs mm-hmm. to get their reasonable attorney's fees as a way of creating financial incentives to, for lawyers to take these cases. Um, but the Supreme Court interpreted that to say if there was a settlement agreement, um, the defendant could sort of in, include the um, the fees or waive their, waive their entitlement to pay or requirement to pay fees as part of a settlement agreement, um, which has ended up meaning that lawyers, most cases that are successful settle and defendants almost always, you know, don't include a, a, a provision for lawyers to get their fees as part of that settlement agreement. And so it makes a lot of cases very, uh, you know, even when there's constitutional violations, difficult to bring financially for lawyers and discourages lawyers from bringing these cases at all yeah. uh, in favor of other kinds of cases. It was wild. Even, um, Alonzo Grant and his family had to go 3,000 miles to San Francisco to get, uh, was that Charles Bonner, who, um, you know, it was, it was walked in Selma back in the day just to have someone who could do it. And just, yeah, it's obviously about the money. What's the incentive for them to be doing these things? Obviously, it was re- cool, really cool to see some stories in there where lawyers were doing it because of the principle, because they want to get those cases that we were talking about passed so they can go in there. You know, it really never hit me um, till I was reading it in your book. Um, you know, when you do get uh, arrested, you do have a right to attorney. You do not in police cases. I mean, I, for some reason, I just never like that never really hit me in the way it did when I was reading your book. That's unbelievable. That just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. So you're right. You have a right to a, to a lawyer if you're facing prison or jail, you know, but but not. But not if you if your constitutional rights have been violated and you're seeking money or some sort of forward looking relief. And again, the idea is you don't need the lawyer because you can pay your lawyer from, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, if you if you win. Yeah. But it doesn't that doesn't end up, you know, that that there's a lot of people who can't get lawyers even when their rights have been violated. Such such a shame. The um, kept thinking, too, because when we're talking about all these Supreme Court cases, as you go through, many of them are. you know, when the court was more conservative. So I kept thinking maybe, you know, elections matter. I mean, there's certain things that, that isn't that the case most of the times when these provisions were made powerless or even quantified, um, qualified immunity made stronger that it, the court was more conservative. Yeah, it is true. I mean, it's interesting that um, the, you know, the Earl Warren court sort of thought of as the the most liberal court and and it was uh, still in the warren court that qualified immunity was first created mm-hmm. the, the power to stop and frisk was first created but um it it's really what happened in the later years uh you know after after the warren court yes um the burger and rehnquist and then john roberts yeah. um where these uh protections really really got uh, strong and and part of what I talk about in the book is that these protections have been created and strengthened mm-hmm. out of fears that that I claim don't have any empirical support yeah. but fears about the dangers of too much justice and 
you know, when you have judges on the bench, justices on the bench, um, who have, who, who are, are willing to believe those myths, mm-hmm. um, who don't have any countervailing evidence to question those myths, yep. uh, then the, then the powers are going to get stronger and stronger. When we have, you know, Joe Biden has put a number of just judges on the court, um, ju- judges on the, in the lower federal courts, um, who have experience as civil rights lawyers, who have experience doing criminal defense, um, and and they you know may see the world in a way uh, that is more sympathetic to plaintiffs in civil rights cases, and that doesn't take um, as gospel the kinds of fear mongering that have been mm-hmm. uh, pursued by defenders of the status quo. Yeah, you do talk about how what the the trial judges how. You know, it could be the same facts, but it's a whole uh, different conclusions are made. Let's let's talk. You kind of keep staring me exactly where I want to talk about these, <laughs> these kind of myths that um that do you know empower uh, um these these changes in the court in their decisions. But uh you know obviously the one about there's going to be a whole bunch of frivolous lawsuits and you know more money is spent and that's I mean you clearly outlined that that isn't the case. And I'd love to hear you talk about how why that isn't the case yeah i mean the 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 concerns that courthouses <coughs> will be overflowing with mm-hmm. frivolous lawsuits is i mean those arguments were made against the section 1983's passage back in 1871 and then again you know following monroe versus pate that this claim again and again that frivolous lawsuits will fill the courthouses officers will be bankrupted for reasonable mistakes, mm-hmm. um, those same arguments are used to ju- justify all sorts of barriers, the barriers to finding, to getting lawyers paid, qualified immunity, limitations on the constitution and how it's interpreted. And this is work that I've, my, my scholarly career has really been spent uh, examining these kinds of justifications for limitations on the right to sue. Um, and some of these questions were inspired by my own practice as a civil rights lawyer more than 20 years ago. And what I've found is, and and others have as well, there, there really is no evidence to support these concerns. Way back in the 70s and 80s, there was research done showing that Section 1983 lawsuits were not overburdening the courts, were not filling the courthouses, that cases were not more frivolous than any other kind of case that's that's being brought. Um, and I've done a, a lot of research related to some of these justifications as they play out with qualified immunity and have found officers are not getting bankrupted. They're not threatened with bankruptcy in these cases for reasons that have nothing to do with qualified immunity. It's because state and local governments across the country have created these indemnification agreements that provide that when uh, an officer is sued, they'll be given a lawyer, settlements and judgments will be paid from the city's budget or from insurance funds, not from the individual officer. And um, those protections were created and strengthened at the same time that the Supreme Court created qualified immunity. They were both the state and local legislatures and the Supreme Court were both trying to shield officers from financial liability. They did it in two different ways. And now they both exist. Yep. Um, and the indemnification protections aren't going anywhere, um, but qualified immunity 
should. <laughs> yeah, it's a good, you steered me right towards my next question. I was going to talk about <laughs> cracks in qualified, um, qualified. I mean, yeah. I did want to mention too, though, they talk about that waste of money. Um, but the police officers in this case, or this can't, they can appeal and appeal and appeal over and over again. That it, That's, that's, that's the case still. Yes. Right. <laughs> and so I think what you're referring to is that the fact that, you know, qualified immunity was has been defended as a protection against the costs and burdens of being sued. And the whole idea is that that officers can get qualified immunity, their case can be dismissed quickly, and they don't have to um, deal with the litigation of the case. But but I've actually found, I looked at 1,200 police misconduct cases and how qualified immunity played out in these cases. Very rarely was it raised before discovery, sort of before those costs and burdens of litigation mm-hmm. um, attach for officers before they have to be deposed or participate in discovery or trial. And qualified immunity may actually increase the costs of litigation because officers, when they're denied qualified immunity, can immediately appeal, which can add years to a case mm-hmm. as it makes its way through the court of appeals. And so um the the my my estimation is that qualified immunity actually increases yeah. uh the costs and the time and expense of civil rights litigation yeah i think one of the stories um in in the book uh eight years was added on before there was any anything there and so uh yes one of my favorite sections in the book uh <laughs> uh you know kind of talks about uh, i think it was a better way was the chapter and talks about how there are signs of the armor of qualified immunity beginning to crack. And uh, how so? What signs? Well, there's been some signs that uh, that may just um, have have, you know, appeared and then and then receded yeah. a bit. But yeah. in 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 uh, 2018 um, or 2017, uh, Clarence Thomas suggested that the Supreme Court should reconsider qualified immunity. And Justice Sotomayor had already been critical of it. Justice Ginsburg had been critical of it. And so, but there was this moment um, where it seemed like there were at least three justices on the left and on the right who might be willing to reconsider the doctrine. All of these groups, advocacy groups from the left and from the right uh, tried to petition the court to reconsider qualified immunity. And um, then George Floyd was murdered. Uh, And then there were legislative efforts as well uh, Congress, you know, the House passed a bill to that would eliminate qualified immunity, among other things. Um, both the Supreme Court ended up not making any of the broad reconsiderations of qualified immunity that it sort of had hinted that it was going to do. And Congress's George Floyd Justice and Policing Act uh, failed after negotiations, primarily failed on qualified immunity negotiations. But states have begun to step in. Mm-hmm. And as I talk about in the book, Colorado was the first state uh, right after George Floyd was murdered to enact a sweeping reform bill. And what they did was create a state law right to sue, a, to sue for constitutional violations and provide that qualified immunity is not a defense. And something similar has been passed in New Mexico and in New York City. Mm-hmm and has been considered in a lot of other states, um, but many of those state legislative efforts have thus far failed, uh, based again on these concerns that don't have empirical support, but are very frightening uh, about the impact of eliminating qualified immunity. 
Yeah, I do love that success story in Colorado. And and yeah, it's a shame we don't see more of that All right now. Uh, qualified, uh, ending a qualified immunity is obviously such a big deal, but it's not the end all be all kind of a loaded question, but I'd like to hear some, <laughs> some ideas on what, what else, um, needs to be done, uh, besides ending qualified immunity to kind of, kind of write this. Yeah, I think it's a really important point that qualified immunity is qualified ending qualified immunity would not usher us into a golden age of police accountability. Um, it would be important, but there are part of the reason that I wrote this book and wrote it in the way I did was to make clear that qualified immunity is not the only barrier to yep. relief. There are barriers across uh -huh. the system and addressing any of them would make our system work better than it does. And given the, the impasse, it seems, and the political um, sort of third rail nature of qualified immunity these days, um, I do think it's important to look at other at other avenues. <clears throat> yeah. um, there are, and, and I should say, I, I also don't have a whole lot of faith in Congress or the Supreme Court right now, but there's a lot that state and local do. legislatures oh, yeah, can yeah. do. Mm -hmm. um, so even just taking the, I, you know, I mentioned the Colorado <clears throat> bill and, and other states could, could, could do that, but thinking about even local reforms, mm -hmm. um, there are, uh, cities across the country that are limiting police authority to engage in low-level traffic stops, mm. that are getting unarmed mental health professionals to respond to people who are in mental health crisis, and who are um, increasing the standard for police power to use force um, to when it is necessary, as opposed yeah. to only when it is reasonable, which is what the Supreme Court's standard is. And, mm. and all of those kinds of limitations are going to limit police interaction with um, people in ways that often result in uh, use of force. Yeah. Local governments also, and we didn't touch on this so much, but, but one thing that I found um, in my research is that police departments rarely gather and analyze information from lawsuits brought against their officers that they could use to better understand uh, what the problems are and how to fix them. And police departments also don't bear financial responsibility for settlements and judgments in these cases. Both of those things could be fixed through local government mm -hmm. uh, requirements. You know, local governments give police departments their budgets, which amount to a quarter to a third of those police department or local government's budgets in many yep. cases. They could ask for something in exchange. Mm -hmm. They could ask for or demand that police departments are gathering and analyzing information from these lawsuits and assessing trends in these cases mm -hmm. with an eye toward uh, you know, preventing something similar from happening in the future. They could require police departments to pay settlements and judgments mm -hmm. from their budgets and actually feel the consequences. Yep. Those are changes that could be made at the local level that listeners could ask their local governments mm -hmm. to demand. Um, and, and I think that all of those changes would be important, uh, important steps forward. Absolutely. Um, there's a whole chapter dedicated to this. It's kind of another change is juries. Who sits on juries? And that, that's a big deal. And uh, what, what were the changes there that, that, that we could move that in the right direction? I mean, because obviously the public perception from, from many of the people who sit on juries is very favorable to the police officers, but that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. 
Yes. Well, the the way in which, as I talk about in the jury chapter, the way in which juries are selected mm -hmm. ends up weeding out people who um, would be more sympathetic to plaintiffs in, in these cases. So um, for one, uh, jury federal juries and, and some states as well prohibit people who've ever been convicted of a felony uh, from serving on a jury. Those who know the legal um, system may be the best in some ways yeah. inside out. Yeah. And, you know, there's a case actually that's been brought in New York recently challenging this practice, which is also true in, in New York. Uh, and and it makes the, the the complaint in the case makes the very good point that when you have a history of uh, racial discrimination in policing mm -hmm. and the way in which certain communities are policed, and then you prohibit people who have had felony convictions from serving on a jury, mm -hmm. um, these things are all all interconnected. Yeah. And and obviously, maybe not obviously, but but all of the evidence is that. Um, disproportionately, uh, black people uh, mm -hmm. are uh, convicted of, of felonies. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, in the federal system, you cannot be a juror unless you are registered to vote. And this is again a um, you know white people disproportionately register uh, to vote, and so white people are you know disproportionately not convicted of felonies, disproportionately uh, registered to vote. And then uh, on top of that, there are the way in which questionnaires are sent out and we have to fill them in and respond and then show up cuts out people who don't have stable housing, cuts out people who don't have stable employment and don't have the time to take to, to fill out the questionnaire and, and show up. And all of those changes <coughs> or all of those requirements could be changed or, or modified to increase the pool of people who are uh, within the jury pool and then potentially the people who could serve on these juries. Yeah. Make it more representative of the people as well. One thing, one thing I want to ask before we end here, um, I thought there, you know, there were so many, I loved how the book kind of ended in a more positive note, more action oriented, you know, kind of a call to action, which was so great. So there was like these cool ideas in there. One was this program called the Marshall Motley Scholars Program. Uh, we talked earlier about how people are having a hard time finding lawyers and this was one of the solutions that has offered up for that. Can you talk about that real quick? Absolutely. I'm so it. glad that you've asked because so I, cool. I love this. this scholarship yeah. too. Um, this was a, a scholarship that was created by the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and it is providing uh, uh, tuition, law school tuition for 50 lawyers who then commit to practice civil rights litigation in the South. And the whole idea is to seed the next generation of civil rights lawyers, particularly in the South, where there is a desperate need for civil rights lawyers. And I just think that this is a, a fabulous, fabulous push forward. I hope that more organizations do it. I hope that the Legal Defense Fund continues to raise money to, 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 to pursue this kind of path because having lawyers to bring these cases is is the sort of key beginning step to making all of the other changes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Their advocacy can then in court can then make it easier to get past qualified immunity, can make it easier to get past these other challenges, and importantly, can provide justice for people whose rights have been violated, who right now cannot find a lawyer or cannot find an experienced lawyer who can help them win. And so this is, I mean, this is, I'm a law professor. Part of my goal as a law professor is to see the next generation of civil yes. rights lawyers. Yeah. 
And and this kind of, you know, making it financially possible for people who who don't want to have mountains of debt uh, hanging over their heads and who have to then make choices that don't involve uh, civil rights practice. Um, this is this is a wonderful antidote to to uh, to that. And I, I, I just love it as a as a path forward. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So, yeah, the book is amazing. I just I learned so much. I think it's just. You know what? I'd love the idea of, and I'm glad you came on today to talk about it. There's these moments in time where appropriately, you know, this is really, really talked about and people are talking about change, but it's such a big deal for societies to address these type of concerns. And this needs to be talked about often. And I'm just glad to be able to talk about it with you and spread the word some and, you know, kind of teach. I just noted like it's, we've only touched on a few of those shields and, and, you know, a few of those solutions. There's so much in this book. I loved it. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about it today. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for your kind words and for having me on. And I do agree that it's important to have these conversations, not just when there's a viral video that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, captures public attention for 15 minutes, but but really to have these conversations and maybe even better to have these conversations yeah. uh, in, you know, in the space between these moments uh, where we can think um, calmly and systematically about what our system is and how it should be improved. Yeah, it makes it blows my mind that more people don't want to figure out how to make sure these type of, uh, you know, civil rights problems don't occur all the time, how we can better police the people who are policing us. I just don't understand how this is not something we're all kind of focusing in on. I guess, you know, some of those myths and everything, the fear fuels it all, but you got to keep talking about it. So thanks, Joanne. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.